Shalom. Uh, you're equipped for the kingdom now. You speak Hebrew. That's good. Very important. Well, it's good to be back at, uh, as I prayed before with our brothers, at Beit Lechem Community Church. You thought it was just Bethlehem, huh? <laughs> do, do you know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. You live in a bakery. <laughs> so the house of bread. So it's amazing that Micah 5.2, the prophet said that, in fact, the one who would be the bread of life would be born in the house of bread. Amen? It's wonderful. And so you get to live in that town a little further from the, the other one, but it's more, more peaceful here. So, well, this, this morning, I'd like to, uh, first of all, thank you because uh, you all sent down a, a team uh, to the Holy Land, where I'm from, Brooklyn, to, to, to uh, encourage, yeah, there you go, we always, there's always one, to, to encourage uh, our staff and to, uh, there's nothing that missionaries love more than for churches that want to pray for us to, to actually see what we're doing. And uh, that's a real joy. And just your, your, that's the encouragement by your presence. And so they represented you as the whole church and coming down to Brooklyn to uh, see what God is doing at our Charles Feinberg Center. Uh, Charles Feinberg was actually the first dean of the Talbot School of Theology, where Pastor Frank and I went. And although I was probably way ahead of him, you know, he's so young. And, and so... Uh, Dr. Feinberg was a, a Jewish believer who came to the Lord through Chosen People Ministries and became the first dean at Talbot. So we decided to have an extension in Brooklyn where we can train future missionaries to the Jews. In order to do lab, you just walk out the door. Buy a bagel, you're in. I mean, you know, that's it. So it's for lazy missionaries and trainees. And so uh, we're right in the, the middle of a very, very orthodox Jewish neighborhood. And it's kind of like synagogue, yeshiva, you know, Jewish parochial school. So synagogue, yeshiva, synagogue, yeshiva, kosher butcher, kosher grocery store, yeshiva, no churches, you know, and then us, chosen people. And uh, so we're right in the middle of it, and God's really blessed it. We've planted two congregations in this building that we opened a couple of years ago, and one Russian and one American uh, messianic congregations, and we're having outreach all over the neighborhood, and, and so on. We have about 20 missionaries in New York City. So Brooklyn is, of course, special among all those boroughs because Brooklyn has almost a million Jewish people, and, and so it's really quite significant. It's actually probably the most densely populated Jewish area in the world, beyond Tel Aviv or Jerusalem and so on. But we have ministry there too. And so the Lord is really doing a great work there. Well, I do spend quite a bit uh, of time uh, in Israel every year. Uh, we have uh, a lot of work going on, and I just happen to have donated a daughter to Israel. So I've got one in New York and one there. And uh, she teaches Greek at the only Jewish Bible college in, in Israel. Jewish girl teaching Greek. You never know what's going to happen in life. I would imagine my parents probably were more surprised when their nice Jewish boy who went through his bar mitzvah and everything became a missionary to the Jewish people. That was probably maybe borderline shock, not surprise. And uh, so I was raised in a traditional Jewish home in New York City. And uh, 
raised, uh, bar mitzvah. How many of you have ever been to a bar mitzvah? Okay, good. At least half of you. So, you know, it's where a Jewish kid sings his heart out with a, uh, you know, it's kind of tough singing as a male at 13, you know. But you, you, you sing your heart out and then you have a big party where you get um, fountain pens and stock. And it's the truth. And, and so the next act usually, unfortunately, really, is uh, a lot of the Jewish young men who begin that way and study hard like I did, uh, then really have less and less to do with, with the synagogue, which was true in my case. And then uh, eventually I went to college and dropped out of college within the same couple of months and uh, went out to the only place in the world you could hear the gospel, California. <laughs> and uh, my two best Jewish friends came to know the Lord in the middle of the Jesus movement, which we knew nothing about because at that time we were unsaved Jewish hippies selling and doing drugs and never read Christianity today. Okay? And so they got saved and their lives changed before my very eyes. Being a good Jewish boy, I tried to talk them out of believing in Jesus but had, I couldn't really put my heart into it because I like them better now. <laughs> and uh, then as, as time went by, I would visit them, and they were living in this crazy Christian commune in Oregon. It's a long story. And, and, uh, and, but they were very, they love bombed me when I went up there, and, and I kept wanting to argue. I mean, I am a Jewish New Yorker, and I'm, no one would argue with me. It was very frustrating. And they would just love me, put their arms around me, give me a Bible and say, it's all right here, Mitch. And, and you know, the thick part is Jewish. You know, that's... <laughs> Talk about a challenge. What they didn't know is the small part's Jewish too, you know. How many of you think Luke was a Gentile? Okay, some of it. What did he do for a living? He was a doctor. You'll give that some thought after the football game, okay? <clears throat> it's a very Jewish book. And so I prayed and asked God to show me the truth, and that's a dangerous prayer to pray. He always answers it. And that night, I was in a campground south of San Francisco and, and uh, in a phone booth. And uh, do you know what that is? Some of you don't know. <clears throat> Look it up in Wikipedia. So there, there on the ledge where there should have been a phone book, was a copy of Good News for Modern Man, a modern English New Testament. Of course, I had no idea what it was. It was kind of shining and glowing in the moonlight coming through the trees, very, very dramatic. I thought it was the weirdest thing, though. I started looking at it, chapter names, Matthew, Ephesians. I mean, you know, I mean, who reads stuff? What is that? And uh, finally, I looked at the little stick figures, and they were, it was Jesus, and I finally figured it out that I had prayed, God, show me, and I found the New Testament in a phone booth, glowing in the moonlight. <laughs> Happens all the time. And, and, so, and so I stole it, and then... Uh, <laughs> it was late. There was nobody to ask. And I'll give it back, if, if it's yours. And so I read it, became convinced, something that I never even gave thought to. I became convinced that Jesus was Jewish. I mean, who would have thought? And uh, eventually I found out St. Paul was Jewish. What kind of name is St. Paul? He was a rabbi. And so I came face to face with the one who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. I noticed that one of the things I was looking for is I was, I was trying to 
believe that Jesus was a Gentile, even though I'd read part of it. And so I was looking for places in the Gospels, you know, where he celebrated Christmas. Okay, he, he didn't. If you find it, let me know. And so he celebrated Passover and Hanukkah and Tabernacles and Sukkot, which we're in, just wrapping up in the next couple of days. And so I knew that Jesus was Jewish. And so it was me against another Jewish person. And uh, then I really made a jump because I, I really loved Jesus. I mean, from the beginning, I loved the Sermon on the Mount. I loved what he said. I loved the fact that he never answered uh, anybody with a straight answer, you know. And so, I'm sorry to upset you. I really am. It, I do that to children regularly. And, and so, eventually, I realized that he was God in the flesh. And that, that's really tough for Jewish people, by the way. That's going to be one of the biggest hang-ups you have in sharing the gospel with your Jewish friends. We're taught that God cannot be seen. God cannot come in the flesh. And there's only one God, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. There is only one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, not three. And so it's very difficult for Jewish people to accept the, the uh, Trinity and the deity of Jesus. But I don't know why. I was raised in a more orthodox home, but the Lord just leapfrogged me right into it. And for some reason, it made sense to me. And so right then and there, I accepted Jesus. And then, and then the journey began. <laughs> and it's been a wonderful journey, wonderful journey. Now, this morning, uh, I want to uh, share with you when Jesus is returning. Today? Before the elections, I hope. No, we shouldn't be that self-centered, doesn't it? But I'm going to uh, uh, share with you uh, not exactly the moment when Jesus returns, but I'm going to show you the process by which he returns because there is a prime mover in the second coming of Jesus. And the prime mover in the second coming of Jesus is the salvation of Israel. And so the coming of Jesus, the second coming, is linked to the final repentance of the Jewish people. And so if you want to know when the Lord's returning, keep your eye on Israel. And if you want to have a part in the second coming of Jesus, work towards Israel's salvation. Now, I know that might sound a little odd for some of you, so we're going to look at the Word of God, and we're going to take a, a little journey in the time we have left and see if this is borne out. And then we'll try and figure out where we might be in the chronology, where we might be uh, obviously hasn't come yet, but we're going to see where we are. So let's begin our journey in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be looking at the judgment God, uh, Jesus puts upon the Jewish people in Matthew chapter 23. Um, you're reading here from the New American Standard, and I hear that you are preaching from many different Bibles in this church. So, you do, so I know, Frank, I hear you're an ESV guy lately. Okay, that's happening. I'm an NASB guy, and you have an NIV in the pew. If you had pews, you would have an NIV. And so uh, I've got the New American Standard up there, but I have an NIV right in front of me in case I run into conflicts. Okay, 
So let's look at verse 37. And remember the context. This is sort of the, Jesus is at the end of his rope, really, with the Jewish leaders. And it's, it's kind of a showdown. And uh, we're about, right about to go into the uh, Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is going to start telling them about all the signs of his coming. But before that, this is a very important, pivotal point in the life and ministry and preaching of Jesus. Before he starts talking about the future, this really uh, precedes it. You've got to understand this before you even begin to understand the signs of his coming, which he outlines in Matthew 24. And so he's just at the end of his rope. If it was me, I just would have zapped them all. But, But Jesus, of course doesn't do that. So here's what we're uh, going to read in uh, just a moment. If you look in your Bibles, it has at the top the seven woes. Do you see that in some of your Bibles? We call them the seven oives. Uh, but but seven, seven sections in Matthew 23 of judgment upon judgment upon judgment, which is why Jewish people sometimes say the New Testament is anti-Semitic. Who would say these things about the Jewish people? My only response is, I don't know, read Isaiah. So, so here we go. Instead of just blasting the Jewish people, look at the heart of the Savior that you see revealed in verse 37. O Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together like a mother hen, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings to protect you from the judgment to come. And yet you were unwilling. I reached out to you through prophets, through the first three and a half, three years of my ministry, a year and a half of my ministry. I wanted to gather you as a hen would gather her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. So based upon the unwillingness of the Jewish people to repent and turn to Jesus, who kind of was the last prophetic straw in Israel's history, instead of just zapping them, he says, here's the judgment. Now look at carefully in the text. It's very, very important. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Now that word House, oikos in the Greek, is bayit in the Hebrew, and the Hebrew word bayit, when used even in rabbinic literature, which would have been oral at this time, but Jesus would have been well aware of it, the house was always a reference to the temple. Always a reference to the temple, unless he was speaking about a house. If he said it in general, it would be the temple. So behold, your house, the temple, which every Jewish leader knew well because the ones who were surrounding Jesus were both Sadducees and Pharisees. Sadducees based their life and livelihood on the temple. So behold, your house, the temple, is being left to you desolate. My brothers and sisters, the one clear judgment upon the Jewish people who rejected Jesus at his first coming was the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That's clear. We understand that. You're not anti-Semitic if you believe that. However, if you believe that the Jewish people themselves fell under, generation upon generation, a special judgment from God because of the leaders who rejected Jesus, then you're wrong. 
Pilate said, their blood be upon us. Well, who the heck was he? Was he a prophet? I don't think so. I mean, I believe everything in the Bible, but that doesn't mean everything in the Bible is, is going to come true. He's not, a, he's not a prophet. He's a pagan. And so, for centuries, quote-unquote Christians have actually been very anti-Semitic and believing that the Jewish people were judged as a people for rejecting Christ. Simple as that. In fact, in the 3rd or 4th century, Chrysostom, one of the church fathers, developed the term deicide, which meant that the Jewish people were judged by God perpetually because they killed God. Now, I hope you don't believe that, okay? And, but, uh, you know, listen, I'm willing to share the blame with the Italians, you know? They're, you know, I mean, who really did it? Okay? We know who did it. We did it. Our sins nailed Jesus to the cross. Yes, God might have used the circumstance, but Jesus would never have had to die if it wasn't because of our sin. And if you were the only sinner on earth, he still would have had to die. It's your fault. It's my fault. We take responsibility. But there's something even greater than that. And that is, it was God's intention from the very beginning to send his son to death. In Isaiah chapter 53, written hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to earth, it was clear in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would live a perfect life, he would suffer, and he would die for the sins of all people, not just the Jewish people. And then the good news is, he would break out of the cave and rise from the dead. And so, we do, oh, by the way, Jewish people are under judgment. For our sin, just like you, just like Gentiles. You know, everybody talks about being one in Christ. Let me tell you, we were one in sin too. So your house is being left to you desolate. That's the only judgment. And if you go to Israel, you can go visit the temple area and take a good look at it. And you can say, wow, that's what he was talking about in 70 A.D. And then he says, for I say to you, now look at this carefully, from now on, you will not see me. Now, I think that's the greater judgment than the temple. Sometimes God's judgment is the removal of his presence. To me, that's even harsher. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me, and then comes my favorite word in the New Testament. Oh, it's a little one but it's so wonderful. You will not see me until. Gosh, man, I thought all hope was lost. But you will not see me until you say, I'm leaving. The house is being left desolate, but all hope is not lost because you will see me. Until you say, and here's when, the Jewish people will see Jesus. You ready? Now look, look at your text carefully that way. <laughs> you will not see me until you say, Baruch haba Bashem Adonai. Do you see that right there? <laughs> Maybe it's in the ESV. I don't know. 
You will not see me until you say, Baruch haba Bashem Adonai, the very words a rabbi who's marrying a wonderful young couple says before the broom comes to take his bride. You will not say, see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, until Israel, the bride, recognizes that Jesus is their true bridegroom. And when that happens, the covenant marriage that was promised through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob takes place. And the Jewish people who were destined to become the people of God, along with the church, but the Jewish people who were destined to become the people of God, become the people of God because they turn to Jesus, recognize he's the true bridegroom, and they are married in a beautiful covenant seminary, excuse me, beautiful covenant ceremony, (laughs) which is what we call the second coming of Christ. That's coming for sure. This is a prophecy. Now, let's look at the next one. More about the hope. Go ahead. Acts chapter 3, 19 through 21, the apostle Peter who gave a series of uh, wonderful messages, probably many of them just standing on the steps, the southern steps of the temple, as people were coming in to worship. And uh, Peter uh, loved a big moment. And this was a big moment because there were lots of Jewish people in Jerusalem. This is post-Pentecost, but not post by very long, where Pentecost, Shavuot, we say, was one of the three festivals that Jewish families needed to send a representative up to Jerusalem, which is why Jerusalem was so crowded for Passover, then 50 days later, Pentecost, and eventually one of the feasts that were supposed to go up is Sukkot, Tabernacles, which we're celebrating right now. But this would have been post-Pentecost. Jerusalem would have been loaded with tons of Jewish people from all over the globe. They heard in Acts chapter 2 the gospel in their own language. Some of them got saved. Some of them decided not to leave. And so they began feeding one another and breaking bread with one another. You remember that? Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and going on. And then the next day, After a healing miracle, Peter gets up and gives another one of his sermons, and he says, therefore, this is, this is even before Billy Graham, okay, this was, uh, this was it. Therefore, repent and return. Sometimes we just say repent, but when you're speaking to Jewish people, it's very interesting. The return is very, very important. It's repent. Change your mind, the Greek word metanoia, and return from the Hebrew word tshuva, which was the message of the prophets. It's not enough to change your mind. You've got to go back to what's right. That's the Jewish, that's the message in the Old Testament. It's okay to say, I I am a sinner. That's important. But now what are you going to do? You've got to repent and then turn to what's right. That was the Jewish message in the Old Testament. So repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Look at what it says. By, uh, and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. 
Now, if you didn't have the rest of that text, Christians would say, oh yeah, that means I accept Jesus, and then Jesus comes into my life by the Holy Spirit. My sins are forgiven. I have the presence of the Lord in my life. But that's not what Peter's talking about at all. At all. That's a later sermon. What Peter is saying here is that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send Jesus, the Messiah, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. In other words, brothers and sisters, when Peter preached that message, he gave them a viable offer that if they would all, as a nation, turn and repent and turn back to the Lord, then the result would be the the return of Jesus. I mean, Honestly, do you really think that Peter thought Jesus would be away from earth for a couple thousand years? Is that the way they wrote and lived? Is that the way the apostles wrote and lived? You realize that all of the apostles, the entire New Testament, is written on a second coming hair trigger. They all expected the Lord to come back. When? Soon. If he would have said, so Peter, when's Jesus coming back? Uh, Any minute. Any minute. And so repent and return. Why? Because he's repeating what Jesus even said. The the Jewish people need to repent and return to the Lord. When they do that, Jesus returns. That's the way it happens. Next slide, please. So we need to make a left and go all the way back to the Old Testament, to Zechariah chapter 12. If we can keep going. Now, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, we have the background to this text, and I think that we're at about 1 minute to 12, at least that's when Zechariah, the post-exilic prophet, is writing. It's about 1 minute to 12 for Israel. Whenever this prophecy is going to happen, it's like 1 minute to 12. In other words, the Jewish people have fought all their battles. They're surrounded by enemies. They They don't have any soldiers left. They're about to get crushed by the enemies of the Jewish people. And remember, this is after the return from the Babylonian captivity. So that could not be what Zechariah is referring to. So here's what happens. The Jewish people are up against the wall in a future date to when Zechariah is writing. And we know it's a future date from today because you'll see what happens and it hasn't happened yet. So we know it's a prophecy that still stands unfulfilled. And so here's what Zechariah says is going to happen. In that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Just a word to the wise. If you become an enemy of Israel, you just became an enemy of God. So got to think about that. We need to think about that nationally. In that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And here's what God is going to do, and I love this. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Notice God himself takes the initiative. Israel's about to be destroyed. They didn't call out to the Lord yet. God takes the initiative to bring his people back to himself. Why? Because God never breaks his promises. God said the Jewish people would not be destroyed. Jeremiah 31, 35 and following. 
If you could destroy the sun, the moon, and the stars, you can destroy the Jewish people. You can't destroy the Jewish people. Man cannot destroy those whom God promised to protect. And so in that day, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Grace and supplication are twin sister words in the Hebrew. Grace, of course, means unmerited favor. Supplication means yearning for additional unmerited favor. What happens when God fills you with his kindness and his grace? It makes you want more, doesn't it? It's nothing like it. And so the spirit of grace and of supplication. So what does this unmerited favor that is poured upon the Jewish people at the end of days where their back is against the wall, they're about to be destroyed, what does Israel do? They look unto me whom they have pierced. Wow. That's it. They look unto me whom they have pierced, and they mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Jewish people in that day will be saved spiritually and physically because God poured his spirit upon them and they repent and turn to Christ. Now, what happens after that? Next slide, please. Chapter 14, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. When he fights on a day of battle, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem in the east of, and on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from the east to the west by a large valley and so on. So what is the result of Jewish repentance in the end days? Jesus returns. He returns and he conquers his enemies and he conquers the enemies of Israel. And you can go visit the Mount of Olives. I took a group of young pastors once. We walked up to the southern steps. And I said, you see the Intercontinental Hotels right there on the Mount of Olives? They said, yeah. I said, so where do you think those rooms are going to be? That side or that side? (laughs) Hasn't happened yet. I was just there. But it will happen. And so he will conquer his enemies. In other words, when the Jewish people repent and return and they turn to Jesus, then Jesus returns, and he establishes his kingdom. Next one. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be only one, the only one, and his name the only one. Hold for one second on the slides. You see what's happening? The next great prophetic event in human history, Aside from when you think the rapture is going to come, and if, you, if you're wrong in your post-trib, Frank and I will grab your hand on the way up. Don't worry about that. <laughs> but the next great, clear, prophetic event in human history is the second coming of Christ. And what precedes it? What initiates it? The, the end-time repentance of the Jewish people. So what does that mean to us Today, it means a lot. Number one, just by way of a quiz, in terms of how close we are, do you think it's possible that after a couple thousand years, the Jewish people would be back in the land of Israel? Let's take a vote. I have seven million reasons why. Okay? Do you think it's possible that 
Jerusalem would no longer be divided. In other words, that the Jewish people would have Jerusalem. This prophecy necessitates 1967. You think Jerusalem will be in Jewish hands? Probably, since it is. Then here's, here's the real trick question. Do you think there's any possibility that Israel and the Jewish people will be surrounded by enemies? Just asking. <laughs> Just wondering. So how close are we? Think about this. It's so easy to focus on the things of this world and to forget what's coming. Listen. You're worried about solutions to life in America, as am I. But we need to, every once in a while, remember that God's solution is coming soon. Well, let's, let me close with one passage of Scripture. Paul's understanding of this great event in Romans chapter 11. Now, if their transgression, the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish leaders in the first century, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, did the Gentiles benefit through the Jewish failure? Yeah, look how many Gentiles are here this morning. And welcome. God always had you in mind. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will the fulfillment be? In other words, Gentiles, if you think you have it good because the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus and you got to accept Jesus without having to go through a Jewish conversion and so on, if you think that's good, wait till you see what happens when the Jews come to Jesus. In the same way, then, there has come to be at the present time a remnant of God's according to God's gracious choice. That's verse 5, not 15. Uh, Now, I do want you to look for one moment at verse 11 because I think it's important. Romans chapter 11. We may not have that up there. Romans 11, 11. Well, I don't need to read it. I can quote it. Okay? That the transgression of the Jewish people is riches for the world. How much more will the fulfillment be? That's, That's verse 12. But if you look back at chapter 11, verse 11. Tell you what, I'll quote it in the New International Version. Read it. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? So far, so good. Not at all, or may it never be. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them Israel NIV says, envious or jealous. And the King James says, to provoke them to jealousy. (laughs) In other words, the gospel came to the Jewish people. The Jewish people, a remnant received it, Romans 11, 5, but they were reluctant to give it away. But eventually God moved them. And so the Jews preached the gospel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles received the gospel with zeal. And now God wants the Gentiles to return the favor. This is the the Gentile mandate. (laughs) God has given the gospel free and clear to the peoples of the world 
But he hasn't forgotten his plan for Israel. He now wants Gentiles to give the gospel to the Jewish people through prayer, through whatever means, through going, through giving, you name it. God wants the gospel to go to his chosen people. And you know, somehow in all this mix, even though it's a hard verse to understand, when Paul writes in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, you're the everyone, to everyone who believes, and then he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Somehow, I believe the person who wrote these other passages, understanding what God is planning to do with the Jewish people, understood how important it was to bring the gospel to the Jewish people. And I hope this morning that you think it's important too. You, and you live in an area where God can really use you in reaching your Jewish friends for the Lord. Now, in closing, would you take out your chosen people brochure for just a moment? You all should have gotten one. It's blue. And uh, this is called the tradition of the tearing of the brochure. So you just (laughs) fold it along the perforation at the count of three in Hebrew. We're all going to rip at the same time to show our unity in the Messiah. So here we go. Count after me. Again, the more Hebrew you know now is going to serve you well in the kingdom. So, (laughs) Echad, Shtayim, Shalosh. Well, my friends, the time is coming when our unity will be perfected. So, keep the brochure. Remember to pray for us. And would you take out a pencil or a pen? I know that they're hard to find these days. But uh, if you would fill this in and drop it on the uh, book table, every month the entire Chosen People staff will name a representative to come to your home for dinner once a month. (laughs) So you can fill this out so we know where you live. Okay, and on, on the reverse side, there are a number of boxes to check. And also, if you're going to uh, have chicken soup and matzo ball, we'll put you at the top of the list. So, so you'll be able to give this to Miriam at the book table. Um, also, we have some books in the back. Uh, the Fall Feast of Israel, my wife and I wrote for Moody Press, how the Fall Festivals of Israel were celebrating the last one today, Sukkot, Tabernacles, how they all point to Jesus. Our Jewish calendar is all about the Jewish kitchen. I have to admit, uh, this is my favorite Jewish, Messianic Jewish calendar ever. It's got recipes. It's all about Jewish food. When they proposed it to me, I thought they were joking, and then they did it. So, so it's a great calendar. And then a lot of you are really wondering what book or how you could share something with your Jewish friends. Let me tell, tell you two ways. Number one, Isaiah 53 Explained is a book I wrote that you can take, read, know what's in there, and then hand it to a Jewish friend. I wrote it to my brother-in-law, who's not a believer yet. Okay, so it's very Jewish-friendly. This is the book uh, to give, okay? Secondly, we have a wonderful website for you to go to and recommend. It's called I Found Shalom. You think you can remember that? Ifoundshalom.com. Over 50 testimonies, including mine, of Messianic Jews, Jewish people who found Jesus as their Messiah. It's a great way. If you say to your Jewish friend and your Jewish friend starts asking you a question and you want to talk about the Lord, uh, just give him I found shalom and say, and let us do the talking for you, okay? So we'd, we'd love to help. All right, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your love and goodness and mercy. Thank you for the great day coming. 
Lord, we do see signs of stirrings in the Middle East that make us uh, sit up and wonder how soon it it is. Lord, uh, we pray even so come, Lord Jesus, because we want you to come and return so badly. But Lord, there are many loved ones that we care about who don't know you yet. And so, Lord, we pray that you would actually be merciful. Lord, we pray that you might even delay your coming so that we might have the opportunity to help our family and friends and loved ones to come to know you, whom to know is life everlasting. We pray especially for the peace of Jerusalem this morning. We pray most of all that many Jewish people and Palestinians in Israel will come to know the one who is the Prince of Peace. In Jesus' name, amen. He's a good, good father indeed, isn't he? appreciate that message because I really do believe we're coming to the end of the end of days. I, I think we're seeing prophecy before our eyes. And uh, so I appreciate Dr. Glazer bringing that message. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Messiah, please, uh, we'll have people up here would love to talk to you about Jesus Christ and, and how he can be, especially in this day and time, your Lord and your Savior. We live in very unstable times, but there's someone that can bring great stability to your life and meaning, and that's Jesus Christ. So we'd love to talk with you and, and pray with you. Again, thank you, Dr. Glazer. And I want to appreciate again the choir from Gordon College. God bless you all. Please stop in the back and see uh, Mitch after with his daughter. We've got a lot of great stuff back there. And also do not forget the Christmas boxes. Tell you, Samaritan's Purse, great ministry, great way to reach children all around the world. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May he lift up your face. May his smile shine in your face. And most of all, may the hope of his coming beat in your heart. God bless you and take care.